And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. There are are times, and there are many of them, when I feel inadequate to preach. If you've ever stood in the pulpit, you've probably had that, you know, churning in your gut where you're wondering if you were saying what God wants you to say or, or whatever, you know, thoughts might be going through your head. But I never feel more inadequate is when I preach on the crucifixion. There's simply no way that I can do justice to this most profound event in the history of the world. Um, back in shortly after 2000 came out a track. It's one of my favorite tracks. I, I couldn't find it in my office. But on the front, was a, uh, it actually kind of opened up and it on the inside it said the only death to split time and it had a cross in the middle and before it said bc and on and, and afterwards it said ad and it went on to tell you about the death of jesus and so you know this is just uh, the biggest event in history and when you meditate on the cross of christ uh several um feelings should come about for you mourning for your sin that put him there. Um, horror at God's dreadful judgment that required such a price. Gratitude for the great love and mercy of the Savior to stay on that cross. And awe at the fact that such a one as he would do such a thing as that for such a sinner as I. Yet I lack the ability to set forth all of these things as they ought to be explained and applied. And, and so the truth is we have to cast ourselves afresh on God and pray that He would use His Word in our hearts beyond my ability to preach and beyond your ability to listen. Today I'm going to present an overview of the crucifixion as it's described by the Holy Spirit through Luke. In the following weeks, I'm going to go back and pick out uh, some of the details that call for a little more meditation than you can get in just one sermon. So this really is an overview. I want to set before you four broad themes that the cross displays for us. The cross displays, number one, the awfulness of human sin. Number two, God's dreadful judgment. Number three, His amazing love. And number four, His amazing Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we just ask, uh, Father, as we bow the knee before You, we ask for Your help. Uh, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to speak this truth into our hearts, to open our eyes so that we can see that, it, in fact, our, was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And, uh, Lord, having paid for that, we simply trust in Him now for eternal life. So, God, do that work in our hearts that will bring You honor and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, number one, the cross displays the awfulness of human sin. Now, down through history, wicked men have done some terrible things, slaughtered innocent women and children, uh, tortured people for pleasure, uh, resorted to cannibalism, and, and other evils that are just too heinous to mention. But never has the human race stooped so low as when they crucified the Lord of glory and mocked Him while He was hanging on that cross. The horror of violence is proportionate to the innocence of the victim. If one gang member shoots another, we say, oh, well, he probably had it coming. 
But if a man tortures and murders a little child, we recoil in horror because that child did nothing to deserve such terrible treatment. But while the children are relatively innocent, compared to us, right, relatively innocent, Jesus alone is truly innocent and undefiled. He was never tainted by sin in thought, word, or deed. He went about doing good to all. His teaching and miracles proved him to be God's anointed one, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. For men to disregard all of his miracles, which they tacitly admit when they say he saved others, right? They're referring to the miracles they had seen to make sport of him, uh, a sport of torturing him. And then to jeer as he hung on the cross with his life slowly ebbing out of him. That was the most heinous crime imaginable. John 3.19 says, Men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. The darkness of the human heart was never as dark as when they crucified the Son of God. So God sent darkness over the land as a foreshadowing of His judgment to come. It's a time when men who do not repent will be cast into outer darkness. And Jesus says there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this wasn't an eclipse of the sun. Rather, it meant it was a miracle sent from God so that sinful men might tremble at His power and judgment. Now, what would you think if it was a nice clear day and all of a sudden, without an eclipse, the sun kind of darkened and the land went dark? Would that not scare you? Do you know how hot the sun is, scientists estimate? 35 million, excuse me, billion degrees. It has to be that hot to reach us 93 million miles away and warm us up to 90 degrees. So for God to darken that, that's that's quite the feat. The, the, The hardness of the human heart is seen in the fact that the Jewish religious leaders, they didn't even cease their mocking, even in the middle of this darkness. They paid no attention to this miraculous sign in the heavens. Calvin calls it madness that makes our hair stand up on end. He then adds, but this is the spirit of stupidity and of giddiness with which God intoxicates the reprobate after having long contended with their malice. You see, he darkens their minds so that seeing, they do not see. Those who witnessed this horrific event had different reactions. We've looked at this in in the last couple weeks. The religious leaders, they're the most guilty. They had seen Christ's miracles. They had heard His teaching, yet they knowingly and willingly rejected Him, and they even taunted Him as He died there on the cross. The Roman soldiers were also guilty of mocking Him, but it was more out of ignorance and just stupidity. Many just stood and watched out of curiosity, perhaps not knowing exactly what to think. The thieves on the cross, we know from the other Gospels, they both mocked at first, although the one soon came to repentance. The multitudes, after witnessing this spectacle, they went away beating their breasts, vaguely recognizing that something terrible had taken place. Now, perhaps this was the initial working of God's Spirit in convicting them uh, of their sin in preparation for Peter's sermon there uh, on the day of Pentecost. 
Christ's acquaintances and the women who had accompanied him from Galilee, they stood at a distance, probably out of fear and confusion. Now, Luke paints this whole picture for us to show us not only the sin of those who crucified the Savior, but to get us to examine our own hearts. Now, we may not be as guilty as the religious leaders, but we are all guilty. Uh, before our second song, Sarah read uh, Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. Well, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to read verse 6. It says, all of us like sheep, this is us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's how Isaiah defines sin, you guys. Turning, how many of you ever went your own way? Isaiah says that is sin. But he goes on. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The suffering servant, which we know is Jesus. So this morning, I want you to allow the spectacle of the cross to overwhelm you with the awfulness of your own sin. It was your sin. It was my sin that sent Jesus to the cross. Number two, the cross displays God's dreadful judgment against sin. Being sinners by nature, we tend to minimize both our sin and God's wrath against sin. We think that our sin isn't all that bad. After all, why does God get so worked up over it? But Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And nothing less than the death of God's own Son could satisfy His holy wrath that is justly due for our sin. Now, God's judgment is seen in several ways in the story. I've already mentioned the darkened sun as, as one prediction of the wrath to come. It should have made every person there shake and fear and cry out for God's mercy. Now, also, Jesus warned the daughter of, daughters of Jerusalem who wept for Him. He warned them about the coming of the judgment on the city. Now, think about this. For the Jews, children were God's blessing. In fact, it was considered a curse. It wasn't a curse, but it was considered a curse to be barren, to be without a child. But Jesus warned that the days were coming when they would say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. So great would be the suffering and the slaughter that it would be better not to have children at all than to watch them starve and to be hacked, by, hacked into pieces by the swords of the Romans. At that time, Jesus says, men would call out to the mountains to fall on them since that would be a more merciful form of death than what awaited them. And this is an interesting thing here. Jesus talks about the green tree. If it was unnatural for Jesus, the green tree to be burned, how many of you have ever tried to, uh, to burn a green tree? It ain't easy. If you get it hot enough, it'll burn. Anything, almost anything will burn if you get it hot enough. But it's hard to burn. He says, if it's unnatural for Jesus, this green tree to be burned, how much worse would it be when God's judgment was poured out on the guilty, dried-up nation that was ready for fire. And that would happen about 40 years later, about 70 A.D. Not about, but it was 70 A.D. But God's temporal judgments on Jerusalem, what was going to happen in the future, they're nothing in comparison with the eternal judgment that Jesus often warned about. Now, Jesus, He uses some descriptive language to picture the torments of hell. 
In addition to describing it as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, he called it a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, that, he could be picturing, do you remember the rich man and Lazarus? They both die. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, right? The rich man, I mean, yeah, the rich man goes to Hades. And in hell, he sees Father Abraham and says, Father Abraham, would you please send Lazarus over here so he can dip his finger in some water and touch the end of my tongue, for I am in torment in these flames. Hell is serious. Sometimes I think we err in focusing on the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross while we miss the fact that it is just a glimpse of the spiritual agony that he endured. Now, it's significant that none of the four Gospels use much detail in describing his physical suffering. Luke simply says, um, where is it? Yeah, they crucified him. Now, granted, he was writing to Gentiles. That's primarily who this gospel was for. And most of his readers had witnessed crucifixions, so they knew the awful suffering that it entailed. It was one of the most horrific, slow, torturous deaths ever invented. As I said, we tend to focus on the physical suffering. And Austin and I talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. I was preparing for this sermon, and something came up in our conversation. And we tend to focus on the physical suffering because that's what we relate to best. How many had something aching when you got out of bed this morning? Yeah. That's baby suffering, right? We've probably all suffered at great degrees at some point in our life. We're familiar with physical suffering. To some degree, because we are created in the image of God, we have the capacity to understand the spiritual suffering, but it's only this much. We don't pay that much attention to it. We need to understand what was going on with Jesus. If you've heard me talk about the cross before, there's really four, four ways that Jesus... There, there's, there's others, but these four main ways. Physical, yeah, we know about that, right? Nobody wants to get nailed to a cross, okay? Uh, number two is... Bearing, um, becoming sin. He who knew no sin became sin uh, on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of, of, of God in Christ. So becoming sin. He was sinless. He took on sin. Number three is the wrath of God against that sin. He became sin. Now he had to bear the wrath of God against that sin. Nowhere else in history has the wrath of God been poured out as fierce because we are talking about the sin of everybody who would ever, ever believe was on Jesus. And it was the wrath of God that was poured out against him. The fourth way is, is what we call abandonment. Remember what Jesus says from uh, Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back. As it were, the sun went dark, right? Eventually, everything is restored. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But don't forget about the spiritual aspect of the cross. Um, the point of Christ's suffering on the cross was that he bore God's dreadful judgment that we deserved, satisfying God's wrath for us. If, if Christ crucified is your Savior, you will escape the day of judgment where God's wrath is poured out on sinners. Paul triumphantly puts it this way in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But I want to underscore that you cannot eliminate or skim over this point about the cross revealing God's wrath against sin to be a true Christian. Um, Back in 2005, John Piper got a little sabbatical from his church, and over the summer, he wrote a book, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. The one that just was a gut shot to me was the very first one. Reason It was 50 chapters. They're all only about two, two and a half pages. But reason number one, it's on page 21 in the book, reason number one, to absorb the wrath of God. My goodness. My goodness. We cannot skim over God's wrath. Do you understand that we can do nothing in ourselves to appease God concerning that judgment? But what we cannot do, God did, Paul says, not sparing his own son so that no one can boast before God. Now, the religious men standing around the cross said, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. There are still such men today. They have no sense of their own unworthiness or of the majesty and the the rights of a holy God. They do not understand a theology of sin and punishment, of atonement and redemption. And and all of the deep significance of his death has to be taken out out of Christianity before they believe. So we must see in the cross the awfulness of human sin and the dreadfulness of God's judgment against that sin before we move on to point number three. Well, point number three, the cross displays God's amazing love towards sinners. Charles Wesley put it this way in his great hymn, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my my God, shouldst die for me? This is the only explanation for what Jesus did, what he did. If he had stood on his rights, he would have said something like, well, they deserve what they have coming to them. And we'd all have to go, amen, we deserve it. Let them all pay for their own sin. Why should I have to suffer in their place? Well, thank God that he drank the cup of God's wrath because of his unfathomable love. Now, that love is seen in Christ's first words there on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, I hope to deal with this verse next week. Um, Did Tyler say that we're going to be in one service next week? Just just a reminder. So next week at 11, this Lord willing, this is what I'm going to be talking about, this, this particular verse there. His words here breathe the same spirit that he taught in the Sermon on the Plains back in Luke chapter 6 where he said, love your enemies. Remember that? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And just as the gardener in Jesus' parable uh, uh, asked the owner of the fig tree to give it one more year, right? The, 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 the tender of the garden, the, the, the guy who's tending the garden says, let's give it one more year. And if it doesn't produce, then, then we'll uproot it. We'll, we'll cut it down and we'll burn it, right? Well, in the same way, because he is full of mercy and love, he answered Jesus' prayer there by giving Israel 40 more years before judgment fell. All right? He sent them the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. He sent the ministry of the apostles and other believers, and, and literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands came to repentance and faith. When we reflect that we justly deserved what he endured... 
more and more we should be moved to repentance. God here plainly shows us how wretched our condition would have been if we didn't have a Redeemer. That would be us on the cross, except in hell for eternity. Now Christ's prayer for those who so badly mistreated Him, that should give hope to the worst of sinners. Yes, you have abused and mistreated the Savior by your life of sin. Yes, your sin put Jesus on the cross. You need forgiveness. And forgiveness is precisely what Jesus prays for on behalf of guilty sinners. He doesn't offer it based on your deserving it, but simply because of His great love and mercy. It cost Him dearly, but it's free to you if you will receive it. So the cross reveals God's amazing love for sinners. And number four, the cross reveals God's amazing Savior for sinners. At this point, Luke wants every eye to be on the marvelous person of Jesus Christ. The titles that his enemies mockingly hurled at him, they're true, even though they don't believe it. He is the Christ of God. He is his chosen one. He is the King of the Jews. He is the innocent or righteous one who had done nothing wrong. Now, I want you, I want you to consider five contrasts concerning the person of Jesus. Number one, Jesus was fully human, yet fully divine. This is one of those mysteries that we struggle with. We can't, you know, there are no analogies that don't break down at some point. We kind of take it by faith, but just let me show you here some instances of what I'm talking about on each side. As a man, Jesus was so weak from the night in the garden, remember pouring out and bleeding drops of blood or sweating drops of blood, and, and then his trial and then going and, and being uh, scourged, right? He was so weak that he couldn't even bear his own cross. His terrible physical suffering on the cross shows his full humanity, he felt the same physical agony that the two thieves did. His emotions felt the sting of the mockery there around the cross. He felt the disappointment of his disciples' fearful defection. They all, they all left. His soul agonized for the coming judgment that he predicted for Jerusalem. As a man, Jesus entrusted his soul to God at the point of death, just as he trusted the Father throughout his earthly life. And yet the fact that the creation groaned with the power of the sun becoming so darkened, it shows us that this was no mere man who hung on that cross. Jesus accurately predicted the horrible destruction of Jerusalem. It came about in 70 A.D. His death fulfilled multiple, multiple, I can't talk, multiple prophecies from Psalm 22 to the biggest it says that they, David says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Right? We know that happened to Jesus. It also talks about the soldiers casting lots and dividing his garments. That's all in Psalm 22. But it was fulfilled through Jesus. He was the Christ of God, God's chosen one, the promised king of the Jews. As God, he could promise salvation to the penitent thief on the cross granting him forgiveness and the assurance that he would be with him that very day in paradise. How would you like to hear that from God's own, from Jesus' own lips? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. As God in human flesh, he was truly innocent of all wrong. 
In Titus 2.13, Paul says that Jesus is our great God and Savior. There you have it. It says our Savior is, is a human that He died. It's our God as well. He is God. Anyone who denies either the full humanity or the full deity of the Lord Jesus has denied the very essence of the Christian faith. So that's contrast number one. He was fully human and fully divine. Number two, Jesus is innocent and righteous, yet He bore our sins. Now throughout the story of Christ's trials and His crucifixion, Luke repeatedly affirms His innocence. Do you remember three times Pilate said, He's innocent! I find no guilt in this man. Three times. Um, the thief on the cross repeats it to the other thief. Hey, he's done nothing, he's done nothing wrong. The centurion reaffirms it. Surely this man is the son of God. He's innocent. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He's our advocate with the Father who is the propitiation for our sins. Now, Christ could not have been the Savior of others if He had sins of His own. If He had blemishes on His character, He wouldn't have been an acceptable lamb for the sacrifice for the sins of others. But by the offering of Himself, Jesus abolished that old sacrificial system of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament. And it was symbolized that it was over by the tearing of the veil in the temple. Those sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews tells us, could never permanently cleanse the worshipers. That's why they had to be repeated year after year, even day after day. They had to be repeated. But Jesus, by one offering of Himself, once for all, paid the price for our sins. Well, number three, Jesus was rich beyond belief, yet He became poor that we might be rich in Him. When the soldiers gambled for the very last possession that Christ had on this earth, his clothing, he was literally stripped of everything. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Well, number four, Jesus is full of mercy, love, forgiveness, and we love those things, yet He's also the judge of all. Now, I've already touched on this, so I'm only going to mention it in passing. You see the Lord's compassion in speaking to the women lamenting along the way to the cross. His thoughts are not on His suffering, but on the suffering of them and their children in the future. You see His compassion and mercy in, in, in the prayer for His uh, persecutors. Forgive them. As well as with the thief on the cross. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Yet, His mercy and His love, they do not neg uh, uh, negate the sober fact of the judgment. He was crucified in our place because God does not brush over sin. He never sweeps it under the carpet. All sin will be judged. Now, you've heard me say this before if you've been here very long and you're likely to hear me say it again. Sin is only paid for one of only two ways. There's only two ways that sin is ever paid for. One is by Jesus on the cross. And you appropriate that when you trust in Him for your eternal life. The other way that sin is paid for is by you in hell for eternity. Those are the only two ways. Let that play on your mind a little bit. I hope you've made the right decision, the right choice, and trusted Jesus. Well, number five, Jesus is the crucified one with no followers, right? Uh, they're all scattered, what have you. 
yet he is king of all. Jesus was basically alone on the cross. John's gospel records how that apostle, John, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were there at the foot of the cross, but the rest stood some distance away. The sign over the cross stated the, 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 the criminal's offense. And in this case, it read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, you'll remember, this is probably just Pilate's dig at the Jewish leaders. They had forced him, basically, into crucifying Jesus. So he got back at them by saying, well, here you go. Here is your king of the Jews. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but of all the nations. We see here that he was crucified in shame. In the next couple chapters, we're going to see that he is risen again and he's going to promise a return and come again to set up his kingdom. Luke wants each of us to ask, is this crucified Jesus my king? Is Jesus your king? Well, John Gordon, he was a respected general uh, for the South in the Civil War. After the, after the war, he was running for the Senate, but a man who served under him in the war was determined to see him feated, defeated. During the convention, he angrily stomped down the aisle with his anti-Gordon vote in hand. I'll use this, and he was going to throw it. But as he was passing by the stand, he saw Gordon sitting on the platform, and he noticed that his once handsome face was now covered with the scars of battle. Overcome with emotion, he exclaimed, It's no use. I can't do it. Here is my vote for John Gordon. Then he turned to the general and he said, Forgive me, general. I had forgotten the scars. Has your relationship with the Lord grown a little cold? Have you forgotten the scars? Remember the scars, not only the physical scars, the agony that he endured, but the spiritual. How about the wrath of God that he took in your place on the cross? Let his amazing love turn your heart from sin and give you more devotion to serve him. Let's pray. Father, what a thought to see your son hanging on a tree there at Calvary. God, we, we, we will spend eternity marveling at your grace that would save sinners such as I. And it's through the crucifixion of your son, Jesus. So God, I pray that you'd help us as believers never to take it for granted. Father, if there's anybody in there here that doesn't know you and your son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, that they will be lit this morning. Father, they will understand just who Jesus is and be drawn to him for what he has done. You're a good and gracious God, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I encourage you, turn to him. You don't bring anything to him. You come empty-handed. Okay, He was empty-handed on the cross when he died. That's how you come to Jesus. Nothing to recommend you to God. Uh, you come and you basically ask God to be merciful to you, a sinner. He'll hear you and he'll do it. Uh, trust in Jesus. It's hard for us in the West. We are taught from the time from the time we're born uh, to be independent and to take care of ourselves and to do whatever we need, right? That's that's anti. That's not what Christianity is about. Religion is about what you can do to get back to God, and we like that in the West. We like doing things, right? We like paying our part and, and taking care of things. 
But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It's based on what Jesus has done on the cross. You simply trust in that. Not in anything that you can do, because you can do nothing now to recommend yourself to God except, except, except receive Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. He'll do that today if you turn to Him. If you're a believer, I hope that you've just had a little, I don't know, a little needle stick to the heart that says, hey, your sin put Jesus on the cross, right? We still sin today. It keeps, it, it, it interferes with that relationship that we now have. You need to examine your own heart as a believer. You need to go back to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sin. Because we can say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to God, you need to praise Him today for that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.